For the Life of the World is a production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Visit us online at faith.yale.edu. Precisely in the meaninglessness, the apparent meaninglessness of suffering, then the prayer which can't even come into words. Paul says the spirit groans within us with inarticulate groanings. And I think that's the Job thing, that we don't even know what to say. There is no logical explanation for what's going on anymore, but we have to trust that then the spirit is groaning within us. The redefinition of authority, which is around the suffering and death of Jesus, that's how the victory of love is won over the world. And so it's a matter of then thinking into that world in which the divine authority over the world is constituted by self-giving love and realizing that actually I can live in that world and the Holy Spirit is enabling me to live in that world and it goes in fits and starts and I'll get it wrong and I'll make mistakes and it doesn't mean I'm perfect from day one but like learning a new language or learning a new musical instrument or something and discovering that actually it is possible to play this stuff and it's working, it's making sense. This is For the Life of the World, a podcast about seeking and living a life worthy of our humanity. I'm Evan Rosa with the Yale Center for Faith and Culture. Can we find joy in our world? It's hard enough to find genuine, death-defying joy in the wake of the failure of the modern utopian project, the expectation that human reason and technology and political revolution might save us all and overlay the malaise of modernity with this dumb pandemic and the prospects for joy seem bleak. But for N.T. Wright, joy doesn't depend on the whims of circumstance or the proper function of the world. He speaks of the hardy resilience of joy, even in the midst of tragic, terrible, and untimely death. He speaks of the groanings of the spirit, laboring and working in us, even and especially when we can't find the words, when everything seems like vanity, a chasing after the wind, when there's nothing to explain the circumstances away. Today we're sharing Miroslav Volf's 2014 interview with a New Testament scholar, theologian, and Anglican bishop, N.T. Wright. He's the former Bishop of Durham. He's Emeritus Professor at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and a Senior Research Fellow at Wycliffe Hall, Oxford. He's the author of many books, including Paul, A Biography, The New Testament and Its World, Surprised by Hope, and many more. Thanks for listening today. You were saying earlier that Christian joy has everything to do with God rescuing God's people, with change of circumstances, with there being a new king around, ruling, uh, that there is, in a sense, what, a political significance to joy? So what's the connection between joy and God's deliverance? Yeah, I, I think... In the Jewish tradition, going back into the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, um, joy again and again is what happens when God finally does something that people have been waiting for, the obvious examples being the Exodus and then the return from exile. And then people celebrate because it's a new day. Something new has happened. We've been in a mess. Something's happened. Everything's changed. And wow, this is fantastic. Or we're going home or the temple is built or whatever it is. And that sense of joy because of something that God has done 
continues on through and is given quite a sort of a new birth in early Christianity because the first Christians believed that God had raised Jesus from the dead and that this wasn't just a kind of a bizarre miracle because God happened to like Jesus so he let him off death or something silly like that. This was about Mm -hmm. Jesus somehow carrying on his shoulders the fate of the whole world and bringing it through death and out the other side. So this is the beginning of new creation and it doesn't look like what we'd expect. So we are no longer waiting? uh, So that there's a sense, well, then, of course, what happens is that all the early Christians were Jews who, as far as we can tell, would have been most likely in some rather vague way, been waiting for the new age to dawn. Mm. But mostly that looks like the old age is going on and then the new age will start and everything will be totally different. Whereas, in fact, what they then experienced was that the two ages sort of overlap so that, yeah, the new has begun, but the old is sort of going on as well, and people are still dying, and people are persecuting us, and so on, so that they have to navigate this quite unprecedented sense of what in the trade we tend to call the now and the not yet, you know, that something has death, and the joy is caused by the now, and the joy generates a new shape to the hope for what is still to come. And... Very often, not yet, seems like far away, at least well, in experience. What happens to joy? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, well, th- that's, that's a question which, it, it's interesting because in the scholarship of the last two generations, people have said, oh, the early Christians were so worried because Jesus hadn't come back after a generation and so on. Uh, I regard that as mostly a projection of the failure of European hopes in the middle of the 20th, 20th century. And you can see this in philosophical cultural writing, people like Walter Benjamin and so on, um, that then that works its way through into New Testament scholarship. And people say, oh, yeah, it was like that in the early church as well. Their their hopes were dashed and they didn't know what to do next. And I'm looking at the text. And apart from one little flicker in Second Peter, actually, they're not saying, oh, dear, what's gone wrong? They're saying, yeah, he'll come back. He will make absolutely everything new. But in the meantime, we have the spirit. We have God's presence with us. We are celebrating God's kingdom as a now as well as a not yet. And so let's get on and do it. And, and see where we're going next. But uh, as uh, folks are about celebrating um, the presence of God's kingdom as they're waiting also, um, many of them are suffering. Many of them are oh, persecuted. Yes. So what's the relationship between joy and suffering? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough one. And you see it in the Acts of the Apostles. One of my favorite sort of examples of this is in Acts chapter 12, which begins with James being killed um, summarily by, by Herod's men. And we think, oh dear, that's terrible. And then later on in the chapter, Peter is about to be killed and the church is praying for him, as presumably they had been for James as well. And Peter gets out of jail free. And you sort of look at the chapter and say, if I was James's mother, I wouldn't be terribly happy about this, you know, uh, because you can celebrate Peter getting out of jail. But what about James? And that's typical of the now and the not yet. But the early church quickly learned to see that as a sign, the suffering was a sign, that they were actually at the leading edge of the kingdom and that they interpreted the suffering, not just as mis oh dear, it's all gone wrong, but rather, well, we are now the representatives of Jesus, who is the Lord, against the principalities and powers. And so it's no surprise that the principalities and powers recognize that, and they're coming to get us. So it means means we really are the servants of the king. The suffering is a, is a badge of the fact that we are sharing the messianic sufferings of Jesus. So, so, so the kind of suffering that one sees, say, in the book of Job, hmm. uh, somebody who 
had roughly everything we might have Warren Buffett of his time <laughs> or something of that sort, reputation, money, everything else. Uh, and then suddenly everything is, is gone, wiped out. Um, are you saying that such suffering might not be even possible given the conditions of no, change? No, certainly not. No, or, no. Uh, no, I mean, the whole category of it may be that we need to differentiate several different types of suffering, and I've not sort of thought through that typology. But the early Christians see their very specific suffering, and Paul says this again and again, and Jesus in the farewell discourses in John says it again and again. Don't be surprised if the world hates you, because we are now swimming against the tide. Now, if in the course of that, all sorts of other Job-like things happen, which they do, then I think that's the sort of moment when the New Testament just holds on to this painfully in the presence of God. And that's when I go personally to Romans chapter 8, which speaks about the whole creation groaning like a woman about to give birth. And the point of that is that the world doesn't know what's going on. It's just in pain and turmoil. And then the church is in the midst of the world, but also groaning because Mm -hmm. it's still waiting. And then Paul says, when that happens, the spirit is within the church groaning, and this is God's spirit, and God the Father, the, ser- the, the searcher of hearts, knows what is the mind of the spirit. And that's very powerful. That means that precisely in the meaninglessness, the apparent meaninglessness mm. of suffering, then the the prayer which can't even come into words, Paul says, the spirit groans within us with inarticulate groanings. Mm. And I think that's the Job thing, that we don't even know what to say. There is no logical explanation for what's going on anymore, but we have to trust that then the spirit is groaning within us. So suffering is, is hopeful? Suffering is hopeful, not necessarily at the time and not necessarily in itself. When Paul talks about suffering in 2 Corinthians chapters 4, 5, and 6, he talks about as dying and behold we live, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. There's this to and fro the whole time. And he says, it felt as though I had received the sentence of death, but this was to make me rely on the God who raises the dead. And it seems as though these are not absolutely at the same moment. These are, um, this is the narrative that the normal Christian life involves, because at the time it felt as though one was being crushed, as though one was being completely destroyed. And it's only with hindsight that one looks back and says, yet behold, here I am. Um, And I think Paul, for Paul, the, the mature knowledge that that is the nature of the narrative means that then the next time it happens, you can just begin to say to yourself, I have no idea what's going on or why, but I believe that actually this too will turn out in the right way. So that's what happens uh, when the child dies, when the father dies, yeah, yeah, as yeah. in your particular case, uh, yeah, yeah. over whose funeral you presided? Yeah, yeah. Well, Every every case is different. Um, in my father's case, he was 91. He'd had a good, long life. Okay. He had been a prisoner of war for five years and had come through that with integrity and with faith and with hope and lived the rest of his long life bringing up his children, working hard, doing what a good father should do and being a wonderful friend to us, um, you know, in his retirement years. He was terrific. It's still incredibly painful. I mean, you don't know how painful a bereavement is going to be till it happens. But at least with a parent, there is a sense of uh, a parent at that age. There's a sense of completeness. There's a sense of thanking God for a life well lived and commending that person and their faith and hope and love uh, to God. And that for me, 
taking my father's funeral was an extraordinary experience. It was like, um, as a bishop, this is one of the most important things that you get to do. It was just a huge privilege to be able to commend him publicly to God and to thank God for him and to pray with joy that in the resurrection, he and we will share in God's new world. You know, that's that's the Christian hope. In a sense, it's a good death, right? Yeah, a yeah, death yeah. after exactly. a well-lived exactly. Uh, exactly. life that has been completed but, but, but rather I mean, than cut off well, exactly. early on. Yeah. But I contrast that with a funeral I did maybe 20 years ago now when I was working in campus ministry um, when uh, a, a graduate couple in the college where I was working had their first child and the child was born with a heart defect but lived long enough for them to come very quickly to love that child, yeah. and then the child died. And that funeral was just incredibly hard because the whole graduate community, kind of many of them young parents themselves, sharing this suffering, this meaningless, this why, this what's that all about. And there is, uh, to give an easy answer at that point, I think is just very bad news um, to try to say, oh, well, it's all right because, that there's, there's no all right because. It's just this is part of the groaning of creation. And all we can do is groan and weep and somehow hope and pray that God the Spirit is groaning within us and will, through that groaning, bring God's new world to birth. So maybe a kind of a quiet flame deep down of joy in the view of hope well, that is yes. coming? Or? Yes. I, I'm not sure I would even put it like that. Mm. I think... I think the joy is is in the larger narrative. And I think to try to say in the middle of that funeral that actually I've got this flame inside, so it's not so bad. I think that's actually denying something because it is bad. It tears us apart. And there are many things in life which which one just has to say this is this is terrible. And, you know, it's... at the same time, you talk about um, joy is not simply emotive response to a situation. You yeah, that's talk true. about it that's as, true. as a virtue. Um, Apostle Paul commands. Yeah, joy. Yeah, yeah, Maybe yeah, yeah. emotions yeah, can be yeah. com commanded, but there's something more involved in yes. joy than just simply... You're right. Uh, and the analogy there would be with love. When Paul tells the Thessalonians that he knows that they love each other uh, anyway, but he wants them to do so more and more, he right. doesn't mean, I know you have warm, fluffy feelings about each other. I want you to have even warmer and fluffier feelings. In the early church, love, agape, is something you do practically and right. looking after people, and it involves money and food and shelter and those right. sorts of things. And in the same way, um, but of course, if you are doing that love with a surly look and, oh, well, I've got to do this, but I don't want to, then that's not love at all. In the same way, Paul can command joy, which I think is to celebrate. And so in, even in a funeral, you are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus and his victory over death. Um, and so to that extent, yes, you may begin to feel that, but you can't control your feelings. The objective celebration of what is true um, then your feelings just have to catch up as best they can. And what if you don't understand joy as, as simply as feelings? As, yeah, uh, yeah. It has a kind of emotive dimension, obviously, yeah. but it's also a way of looking at the world, world way of perceiving, and that would tie into what yeah, you said yeah. at the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, the whole world has changed with the coming of exactly. Jesus Christ, and therefore exactly. you see the world in a different, it, different way. Exactly. How, what kind of seeing is involved in rejoicing? Yeah, I think... I think there it's a matter, it is a matter of seeing and of, and of hearing and understanding, of learning to live within a narrative 
which doesn't appear to people around to be true, i.e. the narrative that Jesus really is Lord already. You know, at the end of Matthew's gospel, the risen Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And most Christians find that hard to believe today um, because the world doesn't look like that. But actually, when you read Matthew's gospel, you see the redefinition of authority, which is around the suffering and death of Jesus, that that's how the victory of love is won over the world. And so it's a matter of then thinking in, and this is where the virtue thing comes, Mm. it's a matter of thinking into that world in which the divine authority over the world is constituted by self-giving love and realizing that actually I can live in that world and the Holy Spirit is enabling me to live in that world and it goes in fits and starts and I'll get it wrong and I'll make mistakes and it doesn't mean I'm perfect from day one. But it is, it is like, it's like learning a new language or learning a new musical instrument or something and discovering that actually it is possible to play this stuff and you know, it's working and it's making sense. At a time um, when Christianity emerged, the uh, time of Jesus and the apostles, um, the public celebrations of uh, Caesar as as the Lord, and in your comments, you have uh, encouraged something analogous to take place, uh, kind of public rejoicing, and you mentioned even perhaps as a kind of protest against uh, what's yeah, reigning yeah, yeah. today. Can you say it's, more about I, that? I mean, it's interesting. Some people have speculated that when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, that he had timed this so that he was coming in on a donkey from one end of the city at the same time that Pontius Pilate, who normally resided in Caesarea, would be arriving for Passover on his war horse with his soldiers on the other side of the city. Even if, the, but I mean, we don't know that. Even, yeah, I love that idea. It's, it's a great <laughs> idea. But even if that wasn't, in fact, uh, a, a timed to coincide, it's still making a statement. This is how we do power. I mean, okay, it's an echo mm, of the mm. book of Zechariah, but it's also a statement about the redefinition of power and authority. And my sense is that in Philippians, where Paul talks more about joy than he does anywhere else, he's also writing to a Roman colony. And some of the people he's writing to will be Roman citizens, probably not all, but in fact, probably rather few of them, but some would. Um, and on the street, week by week, week, month by month, they will have these great classic um, civic festivities, which everybody's supposed to join in with. Mm-hmm. And see, the, 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 the early Christians wouldn't join in, and that's why they would lose jobs, they would you know, lose customers for their shops or whatever, or they'd be beaten up because they're not joining in. And in ancient religion, religion is what you do to keep the fabric of society together. And if people aren't joining in, that's deeply antisocial in quite a strong, strict sense. Mm-hmm. And so, but Paul is saying, I think, not only must you not join in the pagan celebrations and all that goes on with it. But there's lots of things in the society you can rejoice, everything that's noble and true and right and good and pure. Mm. You must celebrate that, but also celebrate in the Lord Jesus. And I think he doesn't just want them to have festive meals behind closed doors. They'll do that as well, no doubt. But I think he may well say that when it's Easter or when it's one of these great festivals, why shouldn't you have your parade down the street as well? Mm-hmm. And as long as everybody knows you're doing it in the right way and the right motives, let all people know your forbearance. You know, this is not an excuse to go wild and behave like they do. Nevertheless, this is the way in which um, and, you know, we, we in, in, in my hometown growing up, 
the churches would do things around Easter, which would be in public and on the street. That's rather died down a bit in the UK now. I don't know about other parts of, of Europe or America, but maybe we haven't done enough of that. We've treated Christianity as a private thing, a celebration in our hearts or our homes at most. And then is it any surprise that people don't take the Easter message seriously? Some people think that there's not much joy um, in the world today. There's maybe fun. There is maybe certain forms of uh, happiness, emotional uh, kind of satisfaction, but not uh, kind of real joy. Um, I think that may well be true. Um, you'd have to do a major sort of sociological analysis yeah. of what you meant by it and then examine different societies. And the trouble is when you ask people questions, um, you raise something to their consciousness, which might not actually be there normally. Um, and I think, yes, having worked as a pastor in many different communities in the UK, particularly, I think there is a serious lack of joy. I think you do see it on great festive events. We in Britain still, with a strong sense of irony, but we still celebrate, for instance, the Queen's Diamond Jubilee, whenever it was a year or two ago. Um, and there's a great sense of, uh, yeah, let's have a party. That's good. We, we, we like our Queen. That, that's been a good 60 years. Well done, ma'am. And, and that's, that's fantastic. And, you know, the Olympics and all of that. Mm. And, so, and I think that did bring real joy. But then there's always a morning after. There's always a, a what now, which, which follows on. Um, but for the most part, I think we live in a confused world because people have believed the lie of modernity, which says that now that we have the electric light and modern medicine and Western-style democracy, utopia is about to break out. And, and if only we elect the right person next time, then we really have utopia. And we keep on electing people and it keep, keeps on not happening. And in mm. fact, things get worse. So I think the failure of the modernist dream, which then drives obviously the postmodern deconstruction, has led to a world world in which people would like to have a bit of joy, but they gravitate with, with music or with sport or with sex or whatever it is, and then it slips through their fingers. And I think that's, uh, that's a sign that people know there is something for which they are made, mm. and they're not quite getting there. And that was, of course, the point that C.S. Lewis was making in his book, Surprised by Joy. Well, C.S. Lewis did it in a very personal way. You've developed it in an almost political way. Thank you for your <laughs> politics of joy. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. production of the Yale Center for Faith and Culture at Yale Divinity School. This episode featured New Testament scholar N.T. Wright and theologian Miroslav Wolf. Production assistance by Martin Chan. I'm Evan Rosa, and I edit and produce the show. For more information, visit us online at faith.yale.edu. New episodes drop every Saturday, sometimes midweek. If you're new to the show, welcome, friend. Hit subscribe in your favorite podcast listening app, and we'd love your feedback. Ratings and reviews in Apple Podcasts are particularly helpful, but we're just as happy to hear from you by email at faith at yale.edu. We read each comment and do our best to respond and improve the show, bringing you the people and topics that you want to hear. And if you're a regular listener, it's a huge honor that you stick with us from week to week. So I'll ask you to step up and join us. Help us share the show. Behind those three dots in your podcast app, there's an option to share this episode by text or email or social media. If you took a brief moment to send your favorite episode to a friend or share with the world, not only would you be supporting the show, you'd be sparking up a great conversation around stuff that matters with people that matter. Thanks for listening today, friends. We'll be back with more this coming week.